Hey guys, welcome to the Frontline Community Church Podcast. My name is David Dorner, and I am the teaching pastor here at Frontline in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and it is so good to be with you. Our mission in this world is to see zero people unchanged by Jesus. So whether you've been following Jesus for a lifetime or if your journey's just begun, we hope that this message will speak powerfully to your heart, that it will reveal something that God desires to cultivate in your life, and that you'll be drawn to the person of Jesus as a result. We hope these next few moments encourage you, challenge you, and inspire you to be who God has created you to be. We hope you enjoy it. Well, good morning. Great to see you all here with us in the room, as well as if you're watching with us online. We know that still at least half of our church is watching online. Great to have you joining with us. We are in week number four of this series called Four People. And our whole world right now is talking about who we should be against. Our whole culture is very, very clear right now on what we should be against and who we should be against. And so we're taking the time to look at and just ask the question, who is God for? Who does he call us to be for as his people? So over the last two weeks, we've talked about how God is for lost people. We looked at the story of the prodigal son, and we talked about the younger brother, and then we talked about the older brother. So I'd encourage you, if you haven't uh, checked in with us in a little bit, go and go back and watch those um, sermons. We talked about how God's heart is for lost people. And today, I want to turn the corner a little bit. I want to talk about a different group of people that God calls us to be for. And we're going to talk this morning about how God is for the next generation. God is for younger people, for the next generation. It's interesting, uh, younger generations have always kind of been the brunt of jokes by older generations who, you know, call them lazy, a bunch of lazy slackers or whatever it is. I don't know what, it, what the age is that you hit, and your generation will hit a certain age, and all of a sudden it's like they just start making fun of the younger generation for being lazy and all this. But now we have social media, so we can make fun of each other at a whole different level. Um, so this past year, I don't know if you, you saw it or not, but there was on Twitter a hashtag that went viral, and it was basically older people using this hashtag making fun of younger people on Twitter. Uh, the hashtag was how to confuse a millennial. Just out of curiosity, how many of you, did anybody see that or, or notice that hashtag? Okay, a couple of you. Um, most of you are not on Twitter apparently. So how to confuse a millennial. So I'll give you a couple of examples Okay, so, so these are older people who are using this hashtag on Twitter to make fun of specifically millennials, millennial generation, boomers and Xers using this. Uh, turn off their autocorrect, how to confuse a millennial. Uh, another one, hand them a job application form, how to confuse a millennial, right? So these are, are most of the, these hashtags were about you know, they, they were, they're not able to get a job or, you know, they, they can't function without their technology. That was what most of the jokes were about. Now, here's where it got interesting. What actually happened is millennials uh, decided they were going to retort and they decided to use the exact same hashtag against boomers and Xers, against the older generation. And so they started basically retorting. So I'll give you a couple of examples of those. Destroy the housing market. Replace grad jobs with unpaid internships. Tell them to buy a house. How to confuse a millennial. But my favorite one uh, was this one. Tweet, hashtag, how to confuse a millennial. Then call us to fix their internet problems 30 seconds later. It's funny because it's true, right? <laughs> now, this was just kind of fun to watch happen between the generations. But th this little uh, microcosm here kind of shows us a bigger 
gap that's happening in our world today. Um, the, the gap between generations is growing, and there is more and more a divide that you can actually feel between younger generation and older generation, especially over the last few years in our world. And it's getting more and more vicious. I mean, we, you hear things like, okay, boomer and Karen and all this kind of stuff being thrown around, but it's gotten past the point of just kind of like friendly joking. And in our world, older generations and younger generations right now are not getting along. It's a problem. Older generations resent younger generations and people in the younger generation either don't trust or just flat out don't respect people in the older generation. And that's our world right now. But what's interesting is when you look at the New Testament, when you look at the church that's centered around the person of Jesus Christ, you see such a different picture painted. We are called to be something so much different in the church. Um, In the book of Titus, uh, Paul is um, writing to Titus, who is the pastor that he put in charge of the church in Crete. And he actually has this whole section where he talks to older men in the congregation. And he says, older men, it's your job to train up and raise up younger men and pass on the faith to them and help them understand how to, how to lead in the church. In the same way, he talks to older women in the church, and he says, it's your job to take younger women under your wing and to train them up, show them how to live godly lives. It's not just in the New Testament that you see this example, though. Really, all throughout Scripture, you see this idea that faith is passed on from one generation to the next generation. Uh, I love Psalm 143, verse 4. It says, one generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. So the picture we're given in Scripture is that as generations, we are supposed to be connected to one another. The older generation is supposed to be raising up and training up the younger generation. The younger generation is supposed to be looking to the older generation for leadership and mentoring. So so this is the idea this morning that I just kind of want to give to you if you are in Christ. If you're a Christian, if you know Jesus, you have a baton in your hand. And this is a relay race baton that I got from my son's track team. The coach let me borrow it for this weekend. But if, if you are in Christ, if you're a Christian, you have a baton in your hand. If you have children or grandchildren, you have a baton in your hand. You have a spiritual baton in your hand. If you have influence with younger people in your job at work, you have a spiritual baton in your hand. If you have relationships at all with anyone younger than you, you have a spiritual baton in your hand. Because here's what we do oftentimes. If you're about 40 or so, what you're thinking to yourself right now is, yeah, you know, when I'm 65, sure, sure, then then I'll have like, you know, something to pass on. No. (laughs) If you're 20 and you know someone who's 13, You have a spiritual baton in your hand. This is for all of us. We're all called to this in the church, what it means to actually pass on faith to the next generation. And so I want to take some time and I just want to talk about how do you pass a spiritual baton, right? In a relay race, in track, the the handoff, the moment of the, the handoff of the baton is the most important part of the relay race, right? Races are won and lost by the handoff. So how do you do this? Whether you're 20 or whether you're 80, how do you pass a spiritual baton? How how did God design the church to work, and and how are we called to do that? So what I want to do is I want to look at a story we find in Scripture. It's It's a spiritual baton handoff that we find in Scripture. 
And so we're going to look at one of the most prolific figures in the Old Testament, the prophet Elijah, maybe the most important or the the most famous prophet in the Old Testament, Elijah. And this is a moment of his handoff to his successor, Elisha. So God has just said to Elijah, Elijah, you've done some incredible things in your life. And Elijah is about halfway into his run. He's not an old man at this point. He's not at the end of his ministry life. He's about halfway in. And God says, you have a problem, Elijah. You need to go call Elisha as your successor. And so this is the story of how that baton handoff happens. This is in 1 Kings chapter 19. That's where we're at, starting in verse 19. It says this, So Elijah went and found Elisha, son of Shaphat, plowing a field. There were 12 teams of oxen in the field, and Elisha was plowing with the 12th team. Elijah went over to him and threw his cloak across his shoulders and then walked away. Elisha left the oxen standing there, ran after Elijah, and said to him, First, let me go and kiss my father and mother goodbye, and then I will go with you. Elijah replied, Go on back, but think about what I have done to you. Now, sometimes you get to a passage of Scripture when you're preaching on it, and you just have to acknowledge this is a weird story. Right? I mean, through our Western eyes, anyway, for, through our Western American eyes, there's, there's all kinds of stuff in the story. It's just like, what? What just happened? And so you, maybe you're asking, well, how in the world was that a spiritual baton handoff? So if I could, I'd like to just peel back a couple of things and give you a little bit of what's going on uh, behind the scenes with this story. First of all, let's talk about Elisha. Uh, what we know from this passage, what it tells us is that Elisha is very, very, very wealthy. The guy is loaded. He comes from a family that is extremely wealthy. Now you're saying, well, I didn't, where is that? I didn't read that in the text. The reason we know that is because he has 12 pairs of oxen. And apparently he has enough land, enough of a field that would necessitate 12 pairs of oxen. So just to put into perspective for you, in ancient Israel at this time, if you had one pair of oxen, that you, were, that you owned and that you were working with, and you had enough land that would require even one pair of oxen, you were wealthy. You were in like the top 1% of people. But if you had 12 pairs of oxen to plow all your land, you're like in the 1% of the 1%. Uh, you're like Elon Musk or Bill Gates or somebody like that, okay? You have got so much money, you don't even know what to do with it. Elisha is loaded. And not only that... Uh, His family has apparently set him up to succeed. The fact that he's with the 12th pair of oxen means that he's the person in his family who's who's overseeing the family land. He's the heir. He's the one who's in charge of it all. I tell you that because oftentimes we look at Elisha and we think, ah, you know, he was just this poor farmer, you know, this poor farm kid, didn't have anything, and, and Elijah came in and rescued him. That's not the case. Elisha had a future. He had a job, he had a career, he had an opportunity, he had parents who had loved him and set him up well, they they just teed it up for him to be able to just succeed in life, and he is going to have the best of the best in life. That's the situation Elisha is in. And God says to Elijah, Elijah, I want you to go call that guy, Elisha, as your successor. He's got a better offer, is, is what I'm saying. And Elijah goes into the field. He goes up to, the, to where Elisha is at the 12th pair of oxen. And what he does is he throws his cloak around him, and then he just walks away. 
Which again, we go, what in the world is happening right now? But, it, but you notice Elisha wasn't confused by that, was he? Elisha seems to know exactly what's happening. He jumps up and runs after Elijah because he understands what's just happened in this moment. So what's happening here is the cloak that Elijah throws around Elisha was actually called a mantle. A mantle was the official garment of a prophet. If you saw, it was a large, heavy cloak. So if you saw somebody wearing one of these mantles, these large, heavy cloaks, you knew, oh, that was a, that's a prophet. That's one of these crazy people who's called to speak on behalf of God. That was the official garment they would wear. So a mantle represented the call of God on a prophet's life for his people. The life of a prophet was not luxurious. It, it was not made of wealth. It wasn't having the best of the best. In fact, a lot of these guys were probably in what we would think of as poverty. And yet, they carried this spiritual mantle, this burden for the people of God. And so in this moment, when Elijah walks up and he throws his mantle around Elisha and walks away, he's just made a profound statement. What he is saying in this moment to Elisha is, Elisha, God sees something in you. There is a calling on your life. And Elijah is essentially saying, Elisha, I believe you can come and you can do what I'm doing with my life. There is a call of God in your life that you could be doing with your life what I'm doing. And in that moment, that's what's being communicated. That's what Elisha understands in this symbolic moment. So if I could, I just want to make a couple observations as we think about this spiritual handoff, this, uh, this moment that happens this spiritual baton that's being passed. And what does it mean for us? So a couple observations about this moment. First of all, Elisha had a job, but he did not have a spiritual mantle. Elisha has money, but he doesn't have a spiritual mantle. He has opportunity. He has job security. Man, he's got the best of the best lined up for him, but he does not have a spiritual legacy He's not living for something bigger than himself. He's not bigger, living for something bigger than the moment he's in right now. And so in this moment, God is, is starting to open up this door. And here's what you're going to see over and over and over again. You see it in this story, but you see it again and again in Scripture, is that oftentimes we do not see the spiritual kingdom potential in ourselves until someone else spots it first and points it out in us first. Oftentimes, it takes someone else, oftentimes someone older than us, seeing the kingdom potential that's in us and calling that out of us and speaking it into our lives before we are able to see it for ourselves. It's just the way it works. I have a mentor who talks all the time about these four letters, I-C-N-U. And he talks, he talks all the time about having, how the importance of having ICNU conversations with people. If you're, if you're going to mentor people, for, with younger people, he says what's so important is to walk up and, and to say to younger people, let me tell you what I see in you. Just to say to a younger person, let me tell you, I see great character in you. You're a person who you're willing to do the right thing even when it costs you something. And, and to be able, be able to speak into the gifts that God has placed into a person's life that are latent inside of them, that, that they don't see inside themselves. Let me tell you what I see in you. I see spiritual leadership inside of you. When you talk, other people listen. Other people pay attention. 
oftentimes we have, in fact, I would just say there's so many of the younger generation that appear like Elisha. They've got all these opportunities. They've got a future ahead of them. They've got money. Uh, They've got talent. But God has placed a calling on their lives. We believe that God has placed a calling on everyone's life. That's what the whole zero unfulfilled callings, uh, the part of our vision is about. But oftentimes we don't see it in ourselves. And what we're waiting for is someone who's older than us to come along and say, let me tell you what I see in you. Let me tell you what I believe God has put in your life and speaks that into our lives. That's what we're waiting for. And if nobody does that for us, what will happen to younger people is they'll, they'll go through life and they'll hit a certain point where they'll eventually hit a wall. I don't know, it might happen when they're 25, it might happen when they're 50, it might happen when they're 60, but they'll hit that wall that we all hit at some point where we, where we ask the question, what am I here for? What's my purpose? What, what, what am I really here doing? Is my life about something else than, than just the money I'm making and the time I have right now? And we ask that question because God's placed more inside of us. In fact, I would tell you, the reason I'm standing here right now talking to you is because when I was about 15, 16 years old, there was a youth pastor by the name of Dave Kujawa who did this for me. He was my youth pastor and I was a a young Christian. He pulled me aside and just said, Brian, let me tell you what I see in you. you, you. You joke around a lot, you mess around a lot, but you have spiritual leadership in you. Other people follow you. Other, whether you realize it or not, other people are paying attention when you talk. And he just began speaking that into me. And, and what happened is little by little, I started to see that in myself as well. But because he saw it in me, I started to see those things that God had placed inside of me as well. And that's why I'm here today. So Elisha, he has a job, but he doesn't have a spiritual mantle. He's missing that piece in his life. That's the first observation. The second thing is that Elijah had a spiritual mantle but he did not have a successor. He had a spiritual mantle, but he didn't have a successor. Now, I want you to remember, Elijah is about in the middle of his ministry life. He's only about halfway done with all the things God was going to use him to do. So we, re- we look at that and we say, so what? Look at Elijah. Nobody would call him a failure. The man is like the greatest prophet in the Old Testament. God single-handedly used him to confront the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Fire comes down. Remember that? King Ahab and Queen Jezebel are confronted. I mean, amazing things God has used Elijah to do. But as it's been said, there is no success without a successor. God says, despite all of that, there's something missing. You have a spiritual mantle, but you don't have a successor. What's interesting is all throughout the scriptures, nowhere in the Bible where you find it that it's called a success when there's a spiritual leader that God raises up, and then after that spiritual leader, there's a vacuum. It happens in scripture, but it's never called a success. Think about it. Moses, you know, this great leader that God raises up and gives him this spiritual mantle to, you know, lead the people out of Egypt to freedom. And God, I mean, Moses hands the baton off to Joshua, right? And then from Joshua, after Joshua, God hands the baton off uh, again and again to this period of the judges. One judge after another is raised up to lead Israel. Then you get to the end of the period of the judges. And what it says is, and after that, there was no king in Israel and everybody just did whatever they pleased. There's no spiritual handoff. The nation falls into chaos. It's one of the most disruptive, horrible times in Israel's history. It's not called a success. 
And I, and I would tell you, God will not call it a success for us in the, the church, in the American church today, if we don't get serious about what does it mean to hand off a spiritual baton to the next generation. God's calling us to this. There is no success without a successor. And I would say, just like we can see so many of the younger generation in Elisha, I would say we can see so many of the older generation in Elijah. You know, for so many in the church, because the divide in our world has just gotten worse and worse between older generation and younger generation, and I think in some ways it's just gotten kind of hurtful and kind of vicious over the last few years, I see many in the older generation in the church kind of taking a step back, kind of like, you know what, I've done my part. I don't need to invest anymore. I can ride off into the sunset. And you see kind of a step back happening. And so uh, if you're in the older generation, as your pastor, I want to say something to you. And the older generation, let's just, say is, let's just say is 55 and above because I'm not 55 yet, so I can pretend like I'm not in the older generation. Um, if you're 55 and above, if you're in the older generation here, part of our church, I want to say something to you as your pastor. We need you. We need you in the church. Uh, students need you. Young married couples need you. Uh, we are not supposed to know how to do this on our own without someone else seeing something in us and calling it out and investing. In fact, if, if we as a church have ever done or said anything to make you feel like, hey, we just don't really care about old people, we don't really need them, I am sorry. If you're in the older generation, you're not done yet. You're needed. We need you to step into gaps and into places in our lives and speak into the lives of younger people and say, I, let me tell you what I see in you. So if we could, let's talk about uh, why don't we pass the spiritual baton, right? Why are so many in the older generation kind of stepping back? Why do so many, even if they're younger, think, ah, I don't need to do this. This isn't a priority for my life. Maybe someday when I'm 65, but not right now. Why don't we pass the spiritual baton, I'll tell you all the excuses we give. Well, I don't know who I'm supposed to invest in. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I don't know how. I don't think any of those are the real reason we don't do it. I think our reasons for not doing this have much more to do with what goes on inside of us than what goes on outside of us. Let me tell you a little bit of my own story. Uh, when I was 38, I was diagnosed with cancer. And when that happens to you in your 30s, uh, something really good happens. I mean, we, talk, we think automatically about all the bad things that happen, but one of the things that's really positive that happens when you get a diagnosis like that in your 30s is it changes the way you look at your life. And suddenly you have kingdom eyes and, and you see your life through a much more intentional lens. And so when I was 39, a year after I was diagnosed with cancer, uh, Frontline gave me the opportunity, the leadership gave me an opportunity to go on a three-month sabbatical. And so to take some time and, and kind of retreat away with my family and take three months and study and grow. And so I'll tell you what I did. For those three months, I had one burning question that I wanted God to answer for me. Seriously, one, to me, it was like this sabbatical is only a success if I come back with an answer to one question. I prayed about it every single day. I journaled about it. I talked to mentors and met with mentors in my life. And here was the question I wanted God to answer for me on that sabbatical God, what do you want me to do with my 40s? I was 39. God, what do you want me to do with my 40s? Because I don't want to just kind of keep walking, keep doing the same old thing. I want to be intentional. God, what have, you called, what have you put me here for? You've allowed me to stay alive. What do you want me to do with my 40s? 
And God answered that question. Again and again, the same thing just kept coming up. I mean, you can go back to my journals during that time. It just kept coming up. Conversations with mentors just over and over again. And so I came back from that sabbatical and and I knew what God had spoken to me. And what I heard him say was, Brian, in your 40s, I want you to be more of a king maker than a king. In your 40s, I want you to be more of a king maker than a king. I thought about Samuel in the Old Testament. He kind of functioned as the king of Israel, but he actually was the king maker. He anointed the first two kings of Israel. I felt like God just said, that's what I want you to be in your 40s. And so I came back from my sabbatical. And if you were on the leadership team at that time, if you were on our staff or any key leader in the church that I was around during that time, you know, that's all I was talking about. People would say, how was your sabbatical? I'd say, it was awesome. God told me in my 40s, I'm supposed to be a kingmaker and not a king. People would say, what does that mean? And I would say, I don't know. I have no idea. (laughs) And I didn't. I had no idea what that actually meant. I just knew that's what God had said. And so I just kept saying it, hoping something would, you know, materialize. And it did. After about a year of coming back from that sabbatical, our entire staff got rearranged, not on purpose, but all of a sudden, I had all of these young pastors, these young leaders around me. And so what God began to speak to me and show me to do was that it was my job to be a kingmaker, not a king, and to develop them. Now, I developed staff before. I've always, you know, in this role, developed staff, but I was always developing staff so that they would do better and make me look good, <laughs> truthfully. But this was a different focus. It was, it was all about developing them so that they could go and reach their kingdom potential, whatever that is. And out of that, within a few months, God uh, gave us the vision to birth this thing called the Zero Collective. This network, this growing network, this family of churches, there are more and more churches that want to be a part of this, where we're just coming together with the common vision around this Grand Rapids area that we want to see zero lives unchanged by Jesus. And, And God just keeps bringing all these younger leaders. Right now, I am having the time of my life in ministry. I've never had more fun in what I get to do than what I'm doing right now. Just pouring into younger leaders and just blessing them and sending them into the calling that God has in their life. And so um, I have, you know, older pastors. In fact, uh, yesterday I was on the phone with a younger pastor just talking about ministry. This person calling me, somebody who's not even a part of our network. God just keeps giving me these opportunities. And so last week I had a pastor ask me, where are you getting all these young, talented people. Uh, that's a regular conversation I have with other pastors. So where, where are you getting these? Where do they come from? Where are you getting these young, talented staff members? So I'm going to tell you exactly what I've told them. I don't know. God just keeps bringing them. I don't know where they come from. If finding young people to invest in and that want to be invested in is actually not hard. That's the easiest thing in the world. The hard thing over the last few years for me, the hardest thing for me has been dealing with the internal ego battle and the pride battle that it's taken for me to make this shift. And that's the real reason why we don't pass the spiritual baton. That's the real reason. Because God will come along and say, Brian, are you okay with celebrating fruit that's on other people's trees? Are you okay when that person shines And God uses them in a powerful way. And people say, wow, look at that. And they have no idea that you were even a part of it. You okay with that? 
Because what we want to do most of the time, we say, no way, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to let go of this baton. I'm going to hang on to that because I don't want them to replace me. <laughs> That's the real reason we don't pass the baton. Well, let, let me tell you what I'm learning. If you will replace yourself, you will always have a place in the kingdom of God. If you will be willing to replace you, God will just keep using you again and again and again because that's how he's designed it to work. That's what he's called us to be. Look at Jesus as the model. Did Jesus say, I'm going to stay here and hold on to this? No, not at all. And in fact, one of the most beautiful things that we see in the scriptures is that Jesus, when he goes and he, he calls his disciples, he has a spiritual mantle that he passes to his disciples as well right? Uh, think about Simon Peter, James and John on the beach there in Galilee. He says to them, I know you guys have a plan for your life. You're out here fishing, but he says, follow me and I'll teach you how to fish for people. Writers of the New Testament, the gospel writers saw Elijah and Elisha, this story we're looking at this morning, saw them in a much broader light um, they understood what the prophet Malachi essentially was talking about and that Elijah was a type of John the Baptist. So Elijah, just like he came and he prepared the way for his successor, Elisha, John the Baptist came in a fuller sense and he prepared the way for his successor, Jesus, which was the birth of the gospel coming into our world. Elijah threw a cloak around Elisha. John the Baptist baptizes Jesus. There's differences for sure. But basically, God's, that's the biblical pattern. God set this pattern up that we would see it, that we would follow it. Here's how the story we're reading ends. After this moment happens, so Elisha returned to his oxen and slaughtered them. He used the wood from the plow to build a fire to roast their flesh. He passed around the meat to the townspeople and they all ate. Then he went with Elijah as his assistant and the rest is history. <laughs> What I love about that story and what I think is so true is that when a younger person understands that God has put a call of God on their life, when an older person speaks into them, let me tell you what I see in you, and they hand off a spiritual baton and they're willing to celebrate fruit on someone else's tree and they invest in that way, younger people, when they sense God has that call in their life, they will set everything else in their life on fire to go, to go pursue that calling, to go live it out. Because there's nothing greater that we can give our lives to than the gospel, than the kingdom, and what God wants to do in us and through us to reach others for Christ. Come follow me. The invitation is, I'll teach you how to fish for people. So here's what we do with this. To just ask the question, whose shoulders need your mantle? If you're a parent in this room, this is a no-brainer for you, by the way. Whose shoulders need your mantle, your spiritual mantle? And you say, well, okay, well, what do I do with that? What does that mean? If I could just challenge you this week, go ahead to the next one. Go have an I see in you conversation this week. Maybe have it today. Pull that person aside and just speak into their life what God's given you to say. Let me tell you what I see in you. Let me tell you what God's placed in you. I'm telling you, if what you spot and you see in their life will be a seed that's planted that God will water and he will grow into something that he uses for his kingdom. This is what we're called to do for one another. 
Let's pray. So Jesus, we just thank you that you picked up the baton of the greatest calling that anyone has ever had in life. The thing that we couldn't do for ourselves, the thing that we couldn't fix for ourselves, our own sin, our own brokenness, that you paid the price for us on the cross, that you made salvation available to all of us, but that you didn't stop there. You didn't just do that. You handed a spiritual baton to us, invited us to come and, and to fish for people. And so God, to the, the greatest ability that you've given us the opportunity, would you allow us to do that? Would you show us whose shoulders need our spiritual mantle, each one of us? And would you show us, God, what it means to invest, to have I see in you conversations, to speak spiritual truth and wholeness into the lives of those who are younger in our world and to train them up, to help them to know the gospel and to know you, Jesus, and to trust in you. Uh, God, till our dying breath, would you give us the opportunity to do that? And would you give us the passion to do it? Not by our own strength, but by the power of your Holy Spirit that you've made available to us. We ask in Jesus' name, and everybody said, 